was cut. Hey everybody, it's Richard and Scott coming to you with another episode of the Surf and Sales podcast. We are at episode 186 as of this recording, so we're super excited. Um, but we're really interested in talking today uh, with Niraj Kapoor, and I hope I didn't butcher. I hope I didn't butcher that. Of everybody works in sales, did I do it right, Niraj? Absolutely perfect. Yeah. Great. And, and before we jump in, obviously, a quick shout out to our December sponsors of Vidyard, Lead411, and Gong.io. We always appreciate their support. So please be sure you check them out when you're in need of those services. So, Niraj, you're, you're the managing director of you know, Everybody Works in Sales, um, and you've been doing that for a couple of years. And then you've got a whole bunch of other things, global sales manager, advertising and sales, um, all senior account executive, like were you always the salesperson? Are you always a I'm hustling to to make a buck kind of kind of guy? No, up until the age of 18, I was just a boring everyday Indian kid being forced to work by his parents who told me if you want to get anywhere in life, you have to go to a top university, get a top degree, and get a job for life. That was just their way of thinking. That's what my father did successfully. It's what everybody he knew did. And the thing was, I wasn't against hard work. I just didn't get much out of school. You know, in school, they teach you all the wrong things. Everything they teach you, in fact, in school is wrong. <laughs> you know, they should teach you about personal development, the importance of charity work, money, entrepreneurism, nutrition, <laughs> selling, how to run a business. This is the most important things you can teach a kid. But instead, they taught me stuff that was of no use, that just bored me senseless. And I couldn't cope with it. And my father would get me tutors to try and help me. And he's like, how can I be a top doctor? My son gets Fs with tutors. You know, he just couldn't understand it. And I said, dad, look, it's not what I want to do. He said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be a rock star. I want to be the Indian Bon Jovi. And uh, I'm not joking. The next day he had a therapist come around to the house to ask me about <laughs> his drugs. Um, <laughs> it was just horrible. They didn't get me. I was just different to what all the other Indian kids were like. They were all terrified of their fathers. They did exactly what they were told. All my friends have degrees. They're top lawyers, doctors. They are bored out of their minds. They're so bored. You know, a bored solicitor I get, but a bored doctor, that's dangerous. But, but that's what I was. I just wanted something more interesting in my life. Were you, were you living in India then when all this was going on or were you already no, in I, I was born i was i grew up in ireland that, that's you not know, my, my grandfather was one of the first indians here in 1952 and they came by boat in those days so it took them weeks to get here um initially his cousin who was the first indian in northern ireland they went to london first now london's just one of the most amazing cities in the world but about 70 years ago it was not the most welcoming city in the world if you were irish or if you were a person of color, it was a horrible place to be. Um, thankfully, it's changed and grown since then. So they weren't made to feel welcome in London. And they came to the Irish countryside where people really are just so friendly. Everybody says hello to you. Yeah, it's, it's a really nice way of life. Very friendly, quite laid back way of life. Now, I have to push back a tiny bit on this part. Because in roughly 1996 or so, I'm in Ireland and, and playing soccer in, in town called Dundalk, right? Yes. So my, my buddy and his brother and his friends say, you know, hey, we should scoot up to Belfast, so you should, like, check it out. <clears throat> and I'm, like, a 19-year-old California, you know, kid. I don't know shit about the world. And I get off the train, and I'm in the town, and there's, like, a fucking tank, a literal tank, like, rolling down the street. 
And I'm like, whoa, what, what is going on? Talk to me about the evolution of Belfast from what I saw back then to what it's like, what it's like now. And, and, the, and Ireland as a whole, in, in terms of embracing tech and startups and young businesses and that kind of thing, because it's become a decent hub in, uh, in, in Europe. Oh, huge. Well, in the 70s and 80s, there was so much terrorism and violence. Everywhere you went, there was an army guy with a machine gun. And, and, and that's, it, it becomes so normal, you don't even question it. And you would go out on a Saturday night and you would have your car checked. They would look through it with detectors, you know. But that's what I grew up with. I did not know any different. Um, so, <laughs> so I left in 1992 to go to England. Um, but that, that's Belfast. But the countryside where my grandfather lived, I loved because I would go there in the summertime. It was just a different world. You had seaside, you had beaches. There was never even a police officer arriving. So it was a different world. So you did have Belfast, but then you had the other countryside, which was beautiful and relaxing. Uh, and in terms of Belfast, I would say in the last 10 to 15 years, it's evolved. It's become a very multicultural place, a much more welcoming place. And in terms of the tech, that's more south of Ireland. So Google have their head office there. I know Microsoft, a lot of big companies in the south of Ireland are based there for tax reasons. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not because it's Ireland, but for tax reasons. Um, it made sense financially for them to do so. But the north of Ireland, where I am, it's not quite as sophisticated as the south in terms of tech. Um, but I do got a big advantage that most people know me, and that, that's that's a big advantage, you know. Yeah, I want to I want to come back to to you know being raised and the pressure of parenting and uh, on those things. When did your parents finally give in or give up on it, or are they still you know telling you you can go find another career? Um, I had a discussion last week with my father, and my nephew had to go to hospital to get an X ray. He's got brittle bone syndrome. And um, he's a lo lovely kid, but, you know, quite ill. And I said, I'll take him. My father says, well, you can take him. You haven't got a job. I said, Dad, I haven't got a job. I run my <laughs> I own business. This. He goes, yeah, but it's sales, you know. <laughs> and it's just incredible. He still doesn't appreciate the fact that because it's not a regular salary, you know, sometimes like January and February, I make a killing. Right. But then March... I might be empty. It might be no work at all, but that's the nature of my job. Summer and December are a little quieter, but January and February is amazing. May and June is awesome. That's just nature of my job. And sometimes during the day, I'll be sitting there with a cup of tea, just thinking. And he thinks I'm just lounging around. I'm not. Warren Buffett said, you got to spend at least half an hour a day thinking in peace and quiet. So my devices are off. He thinks I'm snoring or lying. <laughs> it's just my way of doing... That's just how I am, you know? Um, but... <laughs> He means well. And obviously, my parents are well-meaning and they've always looked out for me, but they have said to me, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And when I got into sales, they were just relieved. Thank God he's got a job. I think that was it. And I think over the years, they kind of thought, okay, he's now a manager. Oh, he's now a sales director. Oh my God, he's, he's doing the chief sales officers club three years in a row. Okay, and I think when they saw my success, and the nicer clothes and the nicer cars and the nice houses and the fact I would pay for their holidays. Once, <laughs> once, like, once they confronted yeah. to their friends about how successful you were, that's when they started to accept it. That's right. Oh God, yeah. I mean, it's quite it's quite funny when Indians get together, guys. It's like 
what does your son do? Oh, my son earns six figures a year. My son's a top doctor and surgeon. My yeah. mom's like, uh, my son works in sales. <laughs> or, or I have to go to the toilet. I need to go to the toilet. I'll come back. And she would literally bury her head in shame. You go, sales? But sales? You know, they don't get it. Because it's not a typical Indian thing. It's not what they think about, you know? <laughs> and I'm glad I can laugh about it now. I could not laugh about it 20 years ago, you know? Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Well... My mom, my mom still to this day, God bless her. She's listening to the show probably. Um, she still likes to tell me that I, I would be a good lawyer. So <laughs> apparently, apparently I haven't made it yet either. Yeah, so. yeah. I, get, I get that same one. Um, but I, I want to shift, Niraj, because you do a lot of things. So for context reasons, right, let's, let's talk a little bit about very specifically, right, what you're doing now with um, everybody works in sales. Like what is that so people understand uh, a little bit about your background as we start to talk about some sales stuff. Sure. Well, really, it's it's sales training for corporations, and it's one-to-one coaching for individuals. Um, I would say since COVID, it's less group sales training, and it's become more one-to-one coaching. That's just the way it's kind of gone. And the one-to-one coaching, about 80% of it is with business owners, working with them directly and their staff. And 20% is with sales executives who aren't getting any kind of training at all, but they want to become sales managers. And every now and again, it's a sales manager who wants to be a sales director. But like I said, it's only 20% because sadly, most salespeople lack awareness. They don't think of getting coached. They just doesn't even occur to so many of them. It's just incredible, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I see that generationally. Like I'm a Gen Xer and I never thought I would want to be coached. I thought I knew it all. And I still battle that part of my ego on a regular basis. Uh, Scott can attest to it. Um, he calms me down. But, uh, but I do think the younger generation is much more open to it. Um, but I don't know if that's how you see it. And, and maybe it's cultural in the U.S. versus Europe. I want to, I want to the add. Younger generation. Sorry, go ahead, Scott. Go ahead. You can answer. The younger generation are much more open to learning, Richard, except when it comes to picking up the phone. They are terrified. I have literally had young people go to HR and complain about me, <laughs> saying, this guy is abusing me. And I was called into the office of this company saying um, the staff's complained about abuse. I said, what? What's going on? He goes, you're forcing her to pick up the phone. I said, oh, my God. She was so scared of picking up the phones. I, I literally said to everybody, right, take your phones, turn them off. We're going to talk about cold calling. And the fact that I made them turn their phone off and I talked them about the phone and I said, right, we're going to do some phone calls to clients straight after this because it's not just me teaching you something, it's you learning something. And at least every company I speak to, there's always one or two young people who go to their bosses or sometimes directly to HR saying, this is unfair. I want to make a complaint. This guy's forced me to pick up the phone. It is shocking. I have never had that in my life. The young people are just terrified of the phone. They're, they just don't get the importance of it because of all was spoken by messenger, you know? So what, so what are they missing out on? Like give people the context. Cause I, I, I think this happens everywhere now. Um, what is that piece that they're, that you can help them understand this is the value of the phone well, what I have to do is I can't just say to people who are terrified of the phone, look, the phone's fantastic. <laughs> Pick it up. It doesn't, it's not, I wish it was that simple. So what I do is I do a training session. I'll say, okay, let's discuss reasons why you hate the phone and why you're scared of it. And they give me their reasons. I say, fantastic. Thank you for that. Now, tell me the list of reasons why you think the phone is important. And that session is deliberately longer. 
it's more detailed. And we go through the list saying, okay, guys, what do you think is going to give you results? <laughs> and what do you think your client is going to want? And majority of the time, they're like, the phone? I said, yes, exactly. This is why the phone is important. And the list of reasons are people buy people. Unless you're working for a huge corporation, people buy people. It's much easier to get your tone across correctly on a phone. Uh, on email, people can ignore you. But on the phone, if you get your 15 to 30 second pitch right, you're in there. But you can write a really good email and get nowhere. And with a phone, you can always go that bit further. You can find out who else is involved in the decision-making process. You can connect quicker. And there's so many things you can do better with a phone and much quicker that you just cannot do by email. Email is the most common form of communication, but the phone or face-to-face -face are still the best forms of communication. I want to I want to shift gears a little bit and and dig into something that um, is relevant for all of us, I think, in a way. But I want to know your perspective, Naraj. And, and that is, how do you differentiate yourself as a sales trainer or sales coach from all the other people out there, right? And I'll pick on, I'll pick on our buddy, Daniel Disney and you mm -hmm. at, the, at the same time, because one of the things I know you do training on, at least I think you do training on is, is LinkedIn training, right? Like social kind of training. And that's a big thing of, of Daniel's, for example. Mm -hmm. So how, how do you go about, and this is important, I think, for anybody who's in our field or people who are thinking about going into business for themselves and whether it's a side hustle or all in, how do you distinguish, you know, your take on a particular topic and subject from somebody else's? So there, there's, a, there's a differentiator there. Yeah, that's a great, great question. So in the proposal stage, and before the proposal stage, of course, I mentioned it as well, I will say, look, I've spent eight years being coached by all the training companies, which I have, and the companies I work for. And even when I set my own business up, my competitors were shocked that I paid money to attend their events because I wanted to see what they were doing. I think, And they didn't even blink twice. They just took my money. Nobody said, no, 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 you're a competitor. They were just happy and shocked that I paid them because it was important for me to see how my competitors worked. So whenever I listen to the clients, go through their needs, recap my solutions, then I will say to them, just to let you know, here's how I'm different. So most sales trainers will get, get a little stick, put it into a laptop and talk for eight hours. It's really boring. It is. And it's not the most effective way to teach sales. I get an old-fashioned clip chart or a whiteboard, and I'll ask you questions, get you to give me answers, because that way you're more involved. I also start the day off with competitions. We have games like One Truth and a Lie, or Tell Me Something Nobody Else Knows About You, and you have prizes of chocolates and champagne and wine. These things build energy. Uh, we also do live role plays. I've seen a lot of sales trainers teach prospecting, or teach what to say on the phone, and that's it. And I'm like, okay, one of you come to the front of the room now. Okay, I'm the client. Let's implement what I've taught you. I do role plays in front of them. And then a week later, I'll join in on phone calls with their client. I will be a consultant, and I will listen to their phone calls with the client, and I will help them. You know, it's becoming really immersed in their business and being really interactive. How, so and so you're going, yeah. you're, you're trying to differentiate yourself potentially. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like you're going way into the weeds. <clears throat> this, it's way beyond just like, um, you know, here's what you're supposed to do. And then that's it. Yeah. Right. You're digging in and, and, and continuing to coach them and train them well beyond the initial moment that you're on stage, so to speak. 
right? Oh, absolutely. My clients are getting harassed at the moment. My client on Friday said, I want to share my screen with you for fun. And he showed me all these sales trainers who were contacting him. Because every time I do training with my, my, my clients, I always take pictures and put it on LinkedIn. So they get harassed by all my competition. But mm. here's the problem is all these trainers do product heavy dumps. Hi, I'm an award-winning sales trainer. They all say that. <laughs> I help you do this, this. They're all like robots of each other, and uh, which I find incredible. And But my, my clients stay loyal to me because I keep them accountable. They only hear from sales trainers in November, December for the January, February booking. That's it. Russ, I'm in keeping in touch with people all year long. I am prospecting all year long, but also I am keeping people accountable. So even people who worked with me back in January and February, they haven't booked with me since. But every month I will speak to the MD and say, okay, how are the team getting on? What results are they getting? What are you struggling with? And quite often as a bonus, I have like a 20 minute one-to-one with a member of staff who's struggling or a member of staff who's a few percent away from their target. You know. I give so much added value, yeah. which again, most trainers don't do. It's a flat fee, sure. £3,000 a day, which is about $4,500. And that's it. You don't hear from them again until they want your money. And in terms of Daniel Disney, I've been up against him twice. And if somebody wants LinkedIn training as part of the sales training for an hour, two hours, no problem. But one company wanted LinkedIn social selling for the entire day. I said, look, I don't want to do that. I just don't. Um, Daniel Disney is a fantastic guy, really good, good friend of mine. I think you should call him. They did. So, you know, that's how, I, that's, I how, that's, how Richard, that's how Richard gets all his business too. I just, <laughs> I just, I just hand him over all the things I don't want to do all day long, right, Richard? That's such shit. You're such so shit. So, um, it's actually the opposite of that. That's why it I'm is actually that. the opposite of that. I'm like, oh, here, you should do this, Scott. You should do this one. So, but I, I agree with everything Garage is saying. Is I see the same thing is that, you know, I, I, we know who the good people are in the business, right? And we, I tell people this all the time that we know our swim lanes. Like I know that if someone wants a deep dive on LinkedIn, you know, go to Daniel, right? Like that's not what I do. I, I'm a little bit more like you, Naraj, of just like I can focus on this part for an hour, maybe two, right? Um, I could build out a massive LinkedIn thing. I just don't, uh, you know, I just know where my swim lane is right now. Um, but I agree with you too, is that it's, it's nothing about, it has nothing to do with what you're teaching them. It has everything to do with how you're teaching it. And I, I call it real play and role play. Like real play is like, what did you say last week in this conversation? And role play is now, what are you going to say next week? Let's role play that deal, right? And that's, to me, that's the biggest piece of the training, right? It's five minutes on concept, 25 minutes role play. Yeah. I don't know if, I don't know if that's how you do it. Sorry? Not as much as that, but I think it's a great idea, but I will spend a lot of time teaching it and making sure they really understand it. Yeah. And then I like to do role plays because the role plays is really important. And again, I'm surprised so many trailers don't do role plays. Yep. And one thing I do in, in my industry is I build a lot of respect up with certain sales trainers like Dan, even Benjamin Dennehy. I've had people call me, you know, when I go through, I, I go, okay, how many calls are your team making a day? And they'll go between 50 and 60. I'm like, okay, I'm not the guy for you. You know, most people I teach will do between 10 to maybe 25 calls per day. They're not the 50. There's two kinds of companies. There's the ones that like really do the big numbers. That's not me. Uh, Benjamin Dennehy, here's his details. And I've passed okay. on quite a few clients on to him, but that's okay. I respect him. He's very different to me. He doesn't teach the way I would teach, but people respect you if you turn their business down and say, look, Here's somebody else. And it's quite interesting. I still have those good relationships with people because I put their needs 
in front of my own needs, in front of my own money, which I would have liked to have had in my pocket. And I think that's very important ethically as a sales trainer, because the way most people look at sales trainers is we're like car salesmen a lot of the time, or we're like real estate. Most people think we're the same, even though we're not. Most people often think I'm just the same as everybody else, even though I'm not, you know? Yeah, I, I see the same thing. I see the same thing. I want to dig in a little bit. I want to I want to give some people some tactics, right? Like let's, you know, I loved how you you walk through with people on um, you know, changing the mindset, right? Changing their frame of reference around the phone, which is beautiful. What are some other tactics you see that you could give out? You know, that aren't, you know, I don't want you to give away your training for free, but like, hey, here are two things every salesperson could start doing on LinkedIn, or hey, here's one or two things you should start doing or stop doing on LinkedIn or email, just off the top of your head, what does that come to? What comes to you? Yeah, sure. The first thing I say always surprises people. What's the most important thing about selling on LinkedIn? Do not sell on LinkedIn. It's like, uh, you know, the Fight Club speech. What's the most important thing? Don't talk about the Fight Club. You know, um, with LinkedIn, it is don't sell. It is relationships first, selling second. Do not be that person who just spams straight away. And it's not just salespeople. I get MDs, even CEOs doing this. It's so off-putting. Uh, and the second thing is I, I like to do listening exercises. So I always get people to like, you know, face each other and say, okay, get into pairs. All right. So person A, I want you to tell person B the most important thing that has ever happened to you in your life. And person B, I want you to be distracted. I want you to pay zero attention. And we do that for 30 seconds. And then we switch it around and say, okay, person A, Tell person B the most important thing in your life. And person B, I want you to listen like it's the most important and amazing thing you've ever heard. And that's all about listening skills and making people feel valued because these are two very easy and very quick things to teach people in sales training. Every show, Naraj. There it is. Every show, Richard starts talking and he's on mute. <laughs> at, this, at this point, I just do it to annoy Scott. Um, I thought you were so wild, but like, oh my god, that is just priceless. <laughs> it was, I was, it was, a, it was a long pause. Yeah, it was pretty priceless, actually. Um, wait, no, wait. I do like the listening skill piece. I like the active listening role play that you do there because it is super important. So, uh, go ahead, Scott. I was going to say, I feel like you know. Every time you speak when you're on mute, I should just get to automatically ask the next question as like your punishment. <laughs> so I actually want to want to dig into something that you mentioned. Um, you were talking about how you kind of you didn't phrase it this way necessarily, but like you're going above and beyond, and you're like following up with past clients and adding value and giving them 20 minutes ad hoc here and there. How are, how do you? balance when you run your own business and you are the product like mm. you are how do you balance helping people out adding value with just giving away you know free advice right and not and not doing any billing how do you how do you think about that uh, i think there's no phrase success leaves clues and, you know, the people I've probably invested most of my life would be Tony Robbins, because I've been to his UPW, I've invested in his courses, and Gary Vaynerchuk. And most of what they do, they do for free. They do. They do it for free, and they give away as much value as they can. And then they will try to upsell people to their programs or to their one-to-ones and their courses. And that's it with me. I give away loads of free stuff. And every now and again, somebody will contact me for coaching. But sadly, they just want free stuff, more free stuff. And I've learned to get rid of those people very quickly. I've learned that especially when young women call me, 
and tell me how amazing and talented I am. I used to go, oh, thank you so much. That's really nice. And I realized they did not care one bit. They just wanted free stuff. But, you know, the, the more times a bad thing happens, the smarter you become. So I've learned to clock on very quickly if somebody is genuine and wanting coaching. I also get to the point very quickly, do you have a budget to invest in this? Because I am not cheap. If you want somebody cheap, there's hundreds of guys out there who can help you. I'm not cheap. You got to invest in me at least four figures. Otherwise, we can't continue. Is that okay? And if it's not, I want you to know I'm absolutely fine with that. So I'm quite upfront with people very early on. I think the yeah. beginning, the mistakes I made was I took too long to make decisions. I worked seven days a week in my business in the beginning, which is not good for your health. And now I work six days a week, most nights, <laughs> which, which is a bit less, but I enjoy my work more now. I was so stressed at the beginning, but now I genuinely love what I do and I get a kick out of it. Hence, I'm speaking to you at, you know, half seven in the evening in England and I'm still full of energy, partly because it was you, Scott, and I was looking forward to seeing you and talking to Richard, but it's <laughs> true. When you love what you do, it just comes across. Now, now, tactically, how do you suss out here whether somebody is serious? Like, what are the questions you're asking, you know, early on? Um, I think, you know, I am starting to get better at this. I still have some work to do, but you know, I had a, um, I had a lead come in the other day and I said to my wife, I'm pretty sure this, this person's broke. I just like had this sense that like, this is not gonna, you know, be a good fit. And I ended up taking the call and sure enough, you know, no, no budget. I'm, I'm way overpriced for what, what they can afford. But I took that call. How do I get better at not even taking that call? Or should I have taken the call and just earlier on kind of get right to the point and get off? How, how do you do that? What is the specific question you're asking? I mean, you said you tell people, look, it's going to be at least four figures. So that'll qualify some people out. But like, what other questions are you asking to make sure somebody is serious and not just, you know, wasting your time? Um, or their no, that's really, really good. Really good question. So after you ask the basic ones, where are you? Where do you want to be? What skill gaps are there? I always ask them, how much do you want this? And when I ask certain questions, I just stop talking. I just listen. And I don't mind having a five or 10 second silence. I think that's okay to have silence. A lot of people get freaked out by it, but I'm okay with it. How much do you want this? What deadline are you working to? What's going to mean to you if you get this? And what's going to happen if you don't do it? So because a lot of sales is psychology. And I hear their answers and they're like, oh, I'm not really sure or not, I haven't really thought about a deadline. You know, it's not going to maybe go very far or I need to check with my wife. <laughs> I get that a lot. Um, but if the person's really determined and you can feel their passion and you really know they want to make a difference. And also if they're a business owner, that helps. If it's a salesperson, they often have to check with somebody or just double check or they're a bit slower. They're always a bit more hesitant. And that's when I say to them, just so I'm very, very clear here, you know, I, I don't do one-offs because for me, this is about building a relationship. A one-off is just a transaction. When I started my business, I did that, but I don't really care about transactions anymore. I care about relationships. So, you know, are you prepared to invest for the next three to six months with me or not? And quite often they say, I just want an hour to kind of, you can help me out. <laughs> and what's yeah. the best rate? What's the best rate you can do? That's when you know it's not a client for me, you know? How did you, how did you make the determination of when to actually go solo? I, I, I wrote about this, you know, the other day and like, 
you know, everybody I think wants to go solo right now and, and get paid to, you know, give advice and be on podcasts and all this stuff. But like, you know, you, you put in decades, not decades, decades, singular decade, plural, like, like me and like Richard, like 20 plus years of, of selling. And then you go out on your own. Was it scary for you to fully go out on your own? Were you ready for it? Did you embrace it? Richard was like all in, I'm ready. I can do this. And I was a chicken shit forever. And I'm still a chicken shit, even though I've been doing it and I've been doing okay. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what it was like for you and when you knew that you were ready. I think there's a great thing in life where you just jump into something and you have no idea what it's like. If I knew how difficult it was to run a business, I hate to say this, I think I'll still be just doing a sales director job in London. I would, because it's easy compared to running a business. And you know you're going to get paid each month no matter what. And I'm still going to get commission. You know, it, it's, you know, I'd had 23 years in London. And I would say from 2006 to 2014, it was the best. I was so lucky to do what I did. I worked hard but I got results. People thank me in my job. Most people go through jobs their whole lives, never get thanked. And I got paid commission every month and every year. I mean, I was, I genuinely felt like I was the luckiest person in the world. And I, I got a lovely home for my family at the time, you know, and I had a good life. But the last few years in London, we got a new CEO in the Fortune 500 equivalent company I work for. All of a sudden, they didn't care about training. They just wanted results, 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 target, target, target the culture went, I did not enjoy it. So I joined another business and they promised me the world delivered nothing. I hated it. And my next job, I got fired from for talking back to the boss's daughter who was mistreating people. She wasn't paying my staff properly. She was mistreating them. I didn't like it. I told her off. She fired me by email. Um, and I thought, I'm not enjoying this. Last few years of selling, I did not enjoy the corporate life. I found it very ruthless. I found that companies were not investing in coaching their staff and coaching became a sweet spot for me. When you're able to help people and take them from being say a B plus to an A player or even a B minus to an A player, it's one of the most fulfilling things you will ever do in your life to make a difference to someone who can now all of a sudden go on holidays they wanna go on, get a deposit for a house, buy lovely clothes, go on great holidays. It's not just about giving somebody money so they can go out and get drunk for the weekend. It's making a difference to their lives. That was for me the turning point. I want to be a coach full time, uh, but I'm enjoying my salary and the perks. And it was only when I wrote Everybody Works in Sales, my first book, and I got into the top 100. And there's pictures on LinkedIn and all over social media of me, opposite Brian Tracy's book, and me, opposite Tony Robbins' book, and me, number 42, opposite Simon Sinek, and me, number 17, opposite Warren Buffett. And I kept taking these pictures and putting them on LinkedIn. And the book just kept selling and selling. And nobody had really read a sales book like this before that wasn't just about sales. It was all storytelling. It was my life story, all the failure I've had to endure in my life and how I overcame it. So it wasn't salespeople, it was HR, it was business owners, it was marketing people. It was incredible. And the book just kept on selling. And I saw the royalties and I thought, yeah, I've made it. Uh, and that was it. I just jumped ship. It was so bad. And the money after three months ran out. And I'm like, oh, crap, what am I supposed to do now? And that's when I have to learn how to run a business. <laughs> That's fascinating. Scott, Scott always had the problem about, you know, not going out and getting drunk. That's why it took him so long. He was, he was afraid to give up the money for that. Uh, yes, that's right. 
So that's fascinating. So, so what are some of the, tell us another story. Like what's another story from your upbringing that helps shape you and your craft and what you do that's maybe in the book that we haven't heard yet. One of the things that is so important in sales is that you endure so much rejection and it's finding the strength to come back from all those rejections. Because some are small rejections, a client saying no to a deal, disappointing. But five clients saying no to a deal is bad. Your target one month before you're about to hit your target, your boss says, you know what? There's a massive hole in this division here in this other division, nothing to do with you. It's not your fault, but your target's going to go up <laughs> by $20,000. I'm like, what? You know, all of a sudden you have all these things happening in sales that you got to prepare yourself for. And I think as a kid, I got kicked on a lot because I was an Indian kid in a white working class school. In a white working class town, I had to deal with a lot of, rejection and the rejection from girls hurt the most because when I was 13 that's all I cared about was girls and I'd go in I had a mustache I had a bum fluff mustache at 13 so I got into bars at 13 <laughs> nobody asked for ID I had this insane bum fluff mustache I wore 1980s denim jackets I looked ridiculous I had oh, patches saying Elvis Presley and Bruce Springsteen oh my god Richard disclaimer a lot of people could walk into bars at 13 in Ireland and not <laughs> that's all right i just i just like this from from you know the i feel like you're the kid from the movie that came out about springsteen a couple of years the Indian kid right or, or maybe it was back i was one of the kid from the john hughes movie 16 candles but i was just i was clueless but i just knew i liked girls and i liked rock music that was it that's all i cared about and i go to bars and i get rejected and again rejected again rejected and no matter how many times 10 15 times in a night you keep on going it's about building that resilience so it almost becomes second hand to you you know and it just happens almost normally and building up my resilience is one of the best things i did as a kid i wasn't aware of course at the time i was building my resilience i was just getting rejected all the time but i kept coming back for more and that's a great skill i have as a business owner whereby recently i have two big pharmacy clients and I pitched it for a third pharmacy client. I thought, this is great. I've got two big clients and pharmacy guys are paying good money at the moment. And they rejected me after all the work I did for a well-known training company, not a better training company, a better known training company. And I was gutted. I, was, I put weeks into this. This was huge. And I lost it. And I was so upset. And I went for a walk, you know, like I always do, listened to a bit of music, did some charity work, hung out with my nephew, talked to my best friend, and within a half day, bam, I'm back on my feet again. You know, you have to be able to get back on your feet when you have big rejections in sales. You really do. One of the things you mentioned earlier is uh, <clears throat> summertime slows down a little bit. December slows down a little bit. You also mentioned, though, that you're prospecting all the time. Yeah. So how, how does somebody who is a business owner like you... Um, how, how are you effectively trying to smooth out the highs and lows? Do you avoid these, you know, this peak sprint and this valley of, of nothing? Or have you just sort of said, ah, this is the, the way it goes. This is the ebb and flow of things. And, uh, you know, there's just seasonality. How do, you, how do you reconcile that? The first two years, I accepted it um, because that's what all other business owners told me. This year, I've changed track completely you know, because I lost 90% of my revenue in March, 2020. All the speaking I was doing at events went. All the corporate training I was delivering between May and June in London 
gone. All clients I was working with put staff in furlough, uh, or in some cases, sadly lost their jobs. And here's the thing, I still had a mortgage to pay. I still have a daughter at university. And I'm like, how am I supposed to deal with this? Because I've just come out of a brutal divorce after 21 years of marriage. I've lost so much. January and February, I was flying high, had my first five-figure months in business, and all of a sudden, boom, everything went. I mean, that's really scary. And I did the old Brian Tracy thing of, okay, get a pen, get a piece of paper, write down 20 solutions, turn everything off, and that's what I did. And I wrote down 20 things I want to achieve. I want to do a masterclass. I want to do a mastermind group. I want to finish off my second book. I want to launch a podcast. Every single thing in there. I did, even though I hadn't a clue how to do them. <laughs> I, mean, I hadn't a clue. I just did it. And I, that really kept me going. I've, I've learned to understand multiple incomes, which I've never really had before. My income was always sales training, mm. sales training, maybe speaking at events and a tiny bit of book royalties. But now it's from masterclasses, it's from mastermind groups, it's from speaking yeah. at events, it's from two book royalties, it's getting a publishing deal for Bookboom to write an ebook. You know, it's all these little incomes. And it meant that in July, when I maybe wasn't coaching as much as usual, I still had other incomes to, to take care of me. Individually, they're not huge, but together, they add up. They're fantastic, you know? Yeah, they add up. Yeah, yeah. Well, we are, we are, uh, getting towards the end of our, our time here together. We want to thank uh, our sponsors, Vidyard and Gong and Lead411. They've been great partners. They've got great products, great people who work there. You should check them out. Um, what can we do for you, Naraj? Is there any questions you have for us? Anything that we could be helpful with? Anything you're working on that you want to shout out? You, you take a moment and kind of take charge. Oh, thank you. Um, well, I've been single for a year. It's not been easy. <laughs> I don't know if I can help you on that front. This is that's not exactly what I do. Maybe Richard can help there. You ask Scott. We're Liverpool fans. Come on, we're practically brothers. I, all I know is that <laughs> supposedly it's supposed to be as easy as swiping left and right, from what I hear. But I don't know. <laughs> so that's my best advice. Um, I don't swim in that pond anymore. So I don't even dip my toe in it. So I'll tell uh, you what: being a man, a bald man in your late forties, it's not fun. Uh, no, I would say coming up. I'm launching on Boxing Day, actually, because between Boxing Day to end of January, that's when the personal development world goes crazy. That's when the Tony Robbins and the Brenda Bouchards and all the top people go ballistic on Facebook and like really promoting themselves big. I've done my research on this. I set up my ClickFunnels account on 26th of December. I'm launching the Mass Sales System, which is my big online course. And it's not just an online course. It's an online course with email coaching every week and one-to-one -one coaching every month. So I'm really mixing it up. That's something I'm really excited about. And if people want to talk about that, contact me on LinkedIn, get in touch. But apart from that, you saw me last month with my ridiculous handlebar mustache. I was raising money from November and I raised about 675 pounds, which is about $850. So that was great. I do that every year. And uh, that was awesome. But no, apart from that, I'm just really happy to be in your show. I love sharing insight with people. And every time I do one of these podcasts, I hope even if it's just a few people take action or learn one thing that just helps them out a bit more, that makes me really happy. Yeah. I love spending time with you, Niraj. You have so much energy and you're so positive. I always get off the webinar or the call or whatever, just like feeling better and, and inspired and ready to go. So thank you for spending some time with us today. No, thank you, Scott. Richard, I really appreciate your time as well. Thank you both for having me in your show.
Likewise, Scott kept me on mute through the end of the show, so that's why I haven't talked in 10 minutes. <laughs> sure, uh, thanks, Naraj. It was a pleasure to talk, chat with you today and learn more about you, bud. You too. Take care, guys. Bye.